0: Three, two. Welcome to 4-Year Review. I'm your host, Scott Birmingham. You can catch me on TV on Fridays doing film reviews on Reno's Mornings on Fox, the Noon Show, and the 630 News. 4-Year Review is an entertainment and what's happening around town podcast. We are being hosted by Open Mic Studios located here in downtown Reno. Our engineer is Brandon if you enjoy this podcast, you want to hear more and more of them, become a sponsor, place an ad, get your name out there. You can contact Brandon. Brandon, where can they do that?
1: Open Mic Studios. You can find us at Facebook, Open Mic Studios Reno or Gmail, Open Studios Reno at gmail.com.
0: Folks, I'd like for you to listen to this because we're going to talk to the man who directed the comeback trail. You're lying. I I swear to you, I'm not lying. I'm not, well, okay, I'm lying a little bit, but I'm a producer, that's what I do. And I will have your money in full, I promise
2: you. You got 72 hours. After that, I choke you to death. Come on, I'm not an idiot. You haven't painted the most accurate portrait of our investor.
1: All right, we've been in trouble before. We always find a way out. It's all over the street. You need money. Why don't you guys come by the set? Frank Pierce is gonna be
2: there. Excuse me, Mr. Pierce. I'm so sorry to bother you. Can I get your autograph?
1: Frank Pierce was insured for $5 million.
0: This scumbag. baby, He doesn't shoot a frame of film and he makes $5 million. Well, how would you have felt if all you had to show for it was a lousy insurance check? Look, I got a scam. What do you mean a scam? We make it look like we're actually going to be putting together a movie. We heavily insure a star who will do his own stunts.
2: You're Duke Montana? Yeah, that's Duke Montana. What are you doing, Duke Montana? Come on, Daily Game. Russian roulette!
0: You are perfect for this particular part.
2: I really connected to the story.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, but Duke is like a Western, you know, it's very masculine.
2: <laughs> Congratulations. Kill him in a stunt, he's dead. And then we're rich. We're rich. Action!
0: Ah! (laughs) Duke Montana, if he were alive right now, I know he would be saying, Where's that damn horse at? Duke, my my God,
2: you're alive. You don't know this guy. He's got like nine lives. It's not that hard to kill somebody. We're shooting this fantastic rope scene <laughs> It's going to be a real killer. If it for you, I'd be six foot under up on Boothill right now. Uh-huh. I'm going to hunt you down. These people are ready to die for you. That's the
0: best choice of words.
2: We in the business. <laughs> A human being,
0: are you? Well, I'm a producer.
2: How is it a guy making a million-dollar movie don't have a better car? I don't believe in ostentatious flamboyance. What Are you stupid? No.
0: Wow. I have today on For Your Review, writer, producer, director, good friend mr george gallo george welcome to the show before i pick your brain on a few things let's start by talking about your new movie and it's called the comeback trail wow what a list of stars tell me a little bit what it's about and tell me about your cast which includes robert de niro and tommy lee jones just for starters
2: the movie's about uh takes place in the 1970s and uh Robert De Niro plays a a, a complete uh, bottom feeding uh, grade Z movie producer. Uh, guys that I I knew very well, you know, and uh, the, De Niro is in heavy debt to Morgan Freeman, who's, who financed his last picture, was demanding his money back, and uh, De Niro comes up with a scam to uh, heavily insure Tommy Lee Jones, an aging Western star who hasn't worked in several years and his plan is to try to kill him in a stunt to collect the insurance, uh, on, you know, shooting a movie. They never have to finish the movie. They just have to kill him in a stunt, collect the insurance and move on. It's the only way De Niro can, uh, think of making a uh, quick money. And Tommy Lee Jones turns out to be very, very difficult to kill.
0: And they lies in spot, a lot of the humor, actually. Oh, uh, well, thank
2: you. Thank <laughs> you thank was, you so much. I thought
0: it was very funny, you know, I, I, and you know, a lot of it happens during that opening scenes. Zach Braff, his character, yeah, Braff. just loves this actor, loves this actor, only for this actor <laughs> to, you know, accidentally meet his death. <laughs> uh, and I just, I love the moment where they're talking about it, and it dawns on De Niro. A <gasps> bulb uh, just goes off on how to yeah, make it. Right. I could kill him. Yeah, I, yeah, I could do
2: the same thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> tell me a little bit about. The genesis of this whole story.
2: Well, of all the films that you know that I've done, this one by far goes back the, the furthest in terms of me wanting to make this. You know, when I was uh, when I was eighteen years old, and I, uh, I I went to a comic book convention in New York City, and I was uh, I wasn't as into comic books as my friends were. So like after a while, you know, they were like, oh, look at this one. and Oh, look at that one. And I was like, yeah, you're yeah, fine. Whatever. You know, I just didn't get it the way they did. And I, I ended up wandering around the hotel where the uh, I mean, as fate would have it, it's like a scene out of a movie. And as fate would have it, I was wandering around this hotel and I went down toward these conference rooms and I could hear the rattle of a 16 millimeter projector. And I popped my head in the room and in the room were a bunch of folks watching this 16 millimeter print that it was an original print in that, you know, all the splicers were going, splices were going through the projector and you could hear the projector skip when it went through a spice. Mm. And it was a movie called the comeback trail that Harry Hurwitz had made. And Harry was in the room. I never met him. And I just found a seat and they were watching it. They rented this room for the day and he was showing it to various cast members and it was not finished. And, I thought the movie was, I mean, look, again, it was pretty hackneyed and, and, uh, you know, in its execution. But I thought the premise was hysterical that they were trying to kill this actor in a stunt to collect the insurance. So for years afterwards, I tried to find the rights to that movie. I mean, for decades. But because the movie was never really released, I could never track the rights down it wasn't like you could call Warner Brothers or wow. you know or Disney or someplace and, it, and it, it there was a version of it that had gotten released uh, on on VHS you know but even that I called the distributor and they were defunct so I had no idea how to get the rights and I, and I just about gave up on it you know I would talk to people about it from time to time and, say, and my, even my lawyer was like George let it go of it you know <laughs> But, you know, but what ended up happening was, again, this is total fate. About 15 years ago, uh, they were screening Midnight Run uh, at at, there's a there's a writer, TV guy, executive producer, Phil Rosen, uh, Phil Rosenberg. And he does these screenings, you know, at his house of of people's favorite movies Hmm. on Sunday night. And they asked me to come speak. The movie was Midnight Run, which I wrote, you know, so they asked me to come and speak. And as I'm going in the door, this woman comes up to me. and She goes, I wanted to let you know that this is my husband's favorite movie. And I said, oh, thank you. That's very, very kind. I said, what's your name? And she said, my name is Joy Hurwitz. And I said, are you any relation to Harry Hurwitz? And she said, Harry was my husband. Oh, wow. Wow. No, total truth. So then I said, "Um, do you? do you know anything about The Comeback Trail? And she literally took a step back. She said, The Comeback Trail? How do you know about the movie? It was never released. (laughs) And and she said it was only screened a couple times in New York. And I said, I was there in this hotel room like uh, 150 years ago. I was one of the people that walked in on the screening. I said, who owns the rights? And she said, I do. She said, when Harry died, he left me everything in the will. So I said, well, do you want to partner up on this movie? And she said, yeah, I'm in. Wow. So that, that what happened. Yeah. That's exactly what happened there.
0: George, G. yeah you producer- that is a good story? That is a no, really the good truth. story. That's yeah, mind blowing. She's
2: one of the producers of the movie. Oh, you know? my
1: goodness.
0: You know, the moral of this is that I want to be invited to the screenings. The- <laughs> yes,
2: absolutely. Yeah. Anytime.
0: Wow. that That's really interesting. And even more interesting to me is the fact that here's this great story. I got. It. I need to know. I need to yeah. know how you corralled the actors, the talent, the pool of talent that you did for this film.
2: Well, this is another classic Hollywood story. And, you know, the geniuses that run studios, uh, I, I use the word genius in a very lo- loose way, okay? I wrote the script with Josh Posner about 12 years ago. And we went everywhere with it. And no one was terribly interested in it. They kept saying, Yeah, it's funny, but it's a movie about making a movie and the protagonist, uh, you know, you're never gonna get anybody big to play the protagonist because he's sort of like Wiley Coyote and every stunt he sets up (laughs) Yeah. You know, every stunt he sets up ends up backfiring on him and no leading man wants to look like a jerk. And I'm like, I think you guys I think you guys don't know what you're talking about. Is this movie funny or not? Nobody nobody gives a shit about that stuff. So anyway. And then again, I started, you know, I was going on to other things. And and then out of the blue, I ended up talking, you know, Bob De Niro and I stayed very close from Midnight Run. And I did some work on Analyze This, which I didn't get credit for. But we stayed in touch. We're very close over the years. And he calls me one day and he says, Georgie, do you have anything funny? And I said, yeah, why? And he goes, well, I just played... Uh, I just did the Irishman. He goes, and I played a psychopath for eight months. He says, I got to cleanse the palate.
1: That's funny. Whoa. Actually that's profound to me.
2: Yeah. So I said, look, I got this really left-handed, really bizarre, very dark kind of comedy, but it's also got a lot of heart at the same time. He goes, well, let me read it. So I sent it to him. He literally called me back two days later and he goes, Georgie, this script is hysterical. I said, (laughs) I said, yeah, Bob, I, I I think so. I said, do you want to do it? He goes, yeah, I'm in 100%. I went, okay, will you let me direct you? And he goes, yeah, why not? I went, all right, you're not going to get any argument for me. I said, right? I'm in. <laughs> so then he said, who do you see as the cowboy? I said, well, I kind of wrote it for Tommy Lee Jones in my head. And he was like, I know Tommy. I'll, I'll call Tommy. And I went, okay, well, that's easy. And then uh, Morgan Freeman, I already knew. So I called Morgan. And then once... Bob said he was interested. The movie came together like in a couple of weeks. I bet. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Plus 12 years. You know? But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: you know, every movie has its not only its story, but a lot of history. You know, there's lots of scripts that just sit dormant for the longest time. And then all of a sudden you get the right people with the right connections and boom, it's there. You know, I, yeah. I think the sad part of the story so far is this stupid pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and talk a little bit about how that's affected this movie and being released.
2: Well, yeah, it was supposed to come out in uh, uh, November around Thanksgiving. I mean, look, you know, we had some test previews. It scored through the roof. Yeah, people love the movie. And uh, I mean, it's, it's an old fashioned crowd pleaser, you know? It really uh, is.
0: Uh, uh, now, I'm going to talk about that in a second. Too, with a right.
1: bunch of old fashioned crowd pleasers. You know, these yeah, guys know like how to guys. Guys. do these kinds of movies.
2: No, I know. You know, uh, Brandon, I, I really like these kinds of movies. I think people have forgotten how to make them. And I think that uh, it's just a classic story that starts at A, goes to B, goes to C. And, you know, I don't consider those things formulaic. I just consider them good storytelling. I mean, yeah. if you're going to use that paradigm, then Greek myths are, are formulaic stories, you know, oh, wow, and they're yeah. classics. That's they're thousands of years old, and people keep retelling those stories because they're great stories. Well, and you they know, can prepared. be done
1: well, or they can be done not well. And and uh, you know, listen, I'm in I'm in an in pretty cre- incredible position here today because I, I'm just some guy in Reno, Nevada that is thoroughly impressed by all this. I wouldn't have a meaningful question to add for this for nothing, but but to hear how it unfolds. I mean, it just kind of shocks me. It makes me think of all sorts of things. And I'm over here with a Sharpie and and a broken piece of paper writing down thoughts just because if I do get these brief moments to speak uh, in the middle of of Mr. Birmingham's podcast here... uh, I just want to say I think this is this is all fantastic. I think it's incredible that you you wanted to stick with the actual version that you saw because I think it would have been very easy for you to do some kind of a writing that would have been similar and just something. But it, it's great that this thing unfolded over decades from the heart. Yeah, that shocks me and I love it.
2: Yeah, well, that's really that's really the truth. That's really what happened. the whole movie was a labor of love. You know. Uh, uh, you know, cause all the people that worked on it, we all had a long history together. So this was pre COVID. It was a lot of hugs and kisses and everybody laughing and the, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't call
1: him Bob De Niro. That's for sure. <laughs>
2: yeah. The cinematographer, Lucas Beelen is an old dear friend. Uh, he, uh, was the first operator on two or three movies I did. And everybody knew everybody, the editor and I go back, 20 years we're old golf buddies and uh you know so the whole movie was uh was just like a bunch of friends getting together and and we were laughing all the time we kept thinking i hope this thing turns out okay because we're having a good time but the movie might suck you know but but we're having a good time
1: (laughs) well the trailer kicks ass
2: (laughs) thanks i'm very happy with the movie i mean again it uh it's it's a story you know and i think uh you know you know by today's standards it feels maybe somewhat retro because it's an actual tale it starts Mm -hmm. out with a person with a dilemma and then another you see uh the tommy lee jones character is suicidal he doesn't want to live anymore nobody knows he exists he used to be a big star you know robert de niro you see him living in this horrible place by Mm -hmm. the airport where (laughs) planes are landing over his house shaking all the silverware and plates and so it sets up a story, you know, and it sets up that he's in debt to Morgan and this whole tale unfolds. So it is very much kind of a throwback to old school filmmaking, which, um, you know, I hope that, uh, I hope it's refreshing, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh in that, you know, it takes its time to, to set up all the characters and, uh, like that, you know?
0: Well, tell me, you know, in where we're at right now, to your understanding at least, when do they have something cemented or everything's still penciled in as to how it's they're going to showcase? It's penciled in for March now.
2: It's penciled in for March now for 3,000 screens. Yeah.
1: All right.
2: Hopefully. Hopefully they'll have the vaccine. Everybody wants to Everybody wants to desperately get out. And look, I'll tell you, I've seen a play in front of a crowd just before the pandemic We, we when we locked our, our cut. People really, really laugh. And uh, we won the Monte Carlo Film Festival. You know, and it, you know, and uh, there were uh, French subtitles, you know, and all the French people were laughing. But then there were a lot of Italians there and some of them didn't speak French and they were uh, just the physical nature of the movie. People were cracking up.
0: Well, I was just thinking the fact that I don't actually know what was funnier through some of the dialogue or actually the things that weren't said that makes it so funny You know, a lot of the reaction shot, a lot of the things that you're anticipating is going to happen that doesn't quite unfold the way you think it's going to unfold, which lends its way to the comedic element of it as well. Uh, And, you know, it's really hard to go wrong with this cast, uh, which begs me the question of the fact that did you guys do any improvising or was it all just locked in script?
2: No, we listen again. If you're going to do a comedy, I, I think you got to cut people loose a little bit. I mean, you know, it's it's very funny. You know, De Niro, uh, Tommy Lee Jones, especially, um, is a guy that loves the text, and it's funny in that Tommy loves the text, and he really thinks about the weight of every word, and really focuses on it and concentrates. Uh, building a character through the text. Bob's a little more freewheeling and uh, you know, Bob knows all the text inside and out, but he'll, you know, he'll, he'll try things. Right. And and so to get an actor that's very, let's say, uh, uh, honoring the text and another one that wants to try shit, it's fun to watch because they kind of throw each other off in a way sometimes, but, it, it creates a more electric performance because, look, I, I may, like I say, I co-wrote that screenplay, and obviously we a lot of love and care went into the dialogue, but in the end, you got to believe it. So I'm not one of those guys that sits there counting his lines. You know, Ed, they said that differently. They, they can reverse those two sentences. I really don't care if it works right. and it's funny, and you believe that this is actually being said in the moment. That's all I really care about, you know? it's got to feel it's got to feel alive and believable i think you know for the two guys especially you know it's funny i mean i think bob delivers an amazing performance you know it's it's uh he's very loose in this he's very he looks like he's having a good time yeah you know and uh and and tommy deliver i mean they all deliver these great performances but tommy has a much different performance in that he's kind of this V- curmudgeonly, you know, kind of perpetually pissed off, drunken fucking asshole, kind of, <laughs> in a lot of ways, you know? And, and, and in a, you know, in a funny way, you know, I was thinking, like, you know, because you know, there, there's various ways you could tell this story, you know, and you know, I didn't want you to start feeling too sorry for Tommy Lee Jones, you know, because, uh, you know, one way could be that you start to feel so sorry for him that you hate De Niro, but I tried to keep it pretty even. In that uh, Tommy was kind of a fucking jerk, you know, and uh, you know.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting you should say that because I do think if it had been played too differently, it changes the tone of the story too completely. Uh There's, and I will say that from my perspective, I thought that Tommy Lee Jones was his character was if anyone had a really complex elements it was his character because all the crap he'd gone through and kind of given up in fact i thought it was great how you guys had that commercial of him selling cars i yeah. mean how low can you go in your yeah. acting profession to do that
2: yeah i mean it's like you know to think that he was yeah i mean to that it made me laugh i mean uh you know we shot other stuff that never ended up in the movie you know uh there was a scene where before he went out and did the car commercial, he was just stone cold fucking drunk, and you know he was so hating life, and and you know then he tried to kill himself in the trailer before coming out to do the the commercial. But you know it's funny; it's like sometimes things on paper you think they're they're funnier than uh, they end up being. And I think the audience like they got it. He, he he was suicidal. You didn't need to see him do all these suicide attempts at the front of the movie, but absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Yeah, you're 100% right, though, about him being the most complex, because, you know, I mean, you know, De Niro's character was sort of a dreamer that still thought he had one great masterpiece of a movie left in him. You know, and that's really (laughs) what drove him. And however he got there, he was going to get there. You know, if he killed people, he didn't give a shit. He was going to make this other movie he wanted to make. Yeah. And. But, you know, can I say one thing about Bob? Uh, uh, you can say
0: anything about Bob.
2: <laughs> okay. When when we were putting together the movie and we started, you know, we started talking about the character and what he was going to look like and how he was going to dress, <laughs> you know, like uh, he's wearing those white loafers all the time, you know, and we started laughing because Bob's 10 years older than me. Right. OK. But we were both in New York at the same time. And we knew all these sleazy movie producers. I mean, you know, because Bob worked for Roger Corman early in his career. And we were both from New York, like I said. And we knew we knew some of these guys. And we started telling stories about meetings we had had early in our career with these lunatics. Hmm. And we couldn't stop laughing. So a lot of that went into his performance. You know, uh, there were certain people uh, there was one guy in particular i don't want to mention his name you know but okay. there was one fucking just grade z <laughs> oh i mean fucking just awful movies you'd be like you're embarrassed you saw it never mind, yeah. made it you know <laughs> yeah and he had the most tiffany taste when you talk to him you thought you were talking to eric von stroheim like <laughs> he had all he, you know he had you know, he had cries and whispers up on his wall. You know, he had all these like he would talk about Bergman, and I'm like, Bergman, you make fucking softcore porn movies. What are you talking about? You know, when he was talking about Bergman, he talked about plasticity, and I'm like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? So a lot of that shit went into De Niro because De Niro knew the guy, and we couldn't stop laughing. He had all these books on his shelf: art is film, film is art, all this bullshit. You know, the films of were true folk. get the fuck out of here. Anyway, and he was making these ridiculously horrible movies. But anyway, yeah, you know, a lot of that stuff went into it, you know. Well,
0: you know, that was when I was emailing you about if you had read or come across Art Linson's book, A Pound of Flesh. because you know, I want to read it. It's a very, very interesting read, actually. It's a very fast read, too. But there's portions of it where he talks about De Niro and, And how he costume fits and wants to look at what he's going to be wearing and tailor certain things. Um, And he'll do them even like when he's in the midst of one project and he's about to go into another. He'll go into the dressing room and start looking for things uh, and piecing together that character before he even goes into the movie set
2: that first day
0: because mm-hmm. uh, he wants to be as much as possible on the contrast he of did, that. He
2: did that on this, Scott. He did that on this. He was sending me pictures of these like really funny shirts and hats, okay. and you know he was really becoming that guy already. And the and he had those white loafers that make me laugh, and those yeah yeah he was that's what he with the thick belt like that welcome to Miami Beach belt you yeah know, he, uh, yeah.
0: And it certainly made that whole 70s feel
2: come to life, too, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know, the other thing, too, again, it's because it's, uh, a couple of critics, I'm glad you got it. They just didn't get it. You know, I didn't want to make fun of the 70s. I wanted to just make it look like it was taking place in the 70s. Right. And well, they I didn't, didn't watch
1: like- it. I got to tell you, because I haven't seen the film. I'm just looking at the trailer. But he yeah. nails the heart of that character. And if you yeah. if you identify and and I gotta tell you he, I am that guy. My my I I lived a life where I was that dumbass, and we could talk about that another time. But the heart of the character is kind of timeless. That buffoony do anything to get to the top guy is gonna exist throughout the span of history. So there's there to, to me you you nailed it by putting him in the seventies. And, well,
0: and the other element too is. Th- and I hate to say this, sometimes as, and to use the quote dreamer, you got to dress and look at to have the psyche of it. Do you know, does that make sense?
1: Yes, um, of course.
0: You know, you're drinking the fancy wines and the, the pink champagnes and the caviar because there's a convincing that needs to happen too mm-hmm. of it. And if you're living the life, then you're part of that life. You know, and Bingo. some people take it to more extremes than others, uh, and some people can say it was a phase I was going through. I just think it fits so properly with the producer, who's the money man. I mean, and there are so many ways that they want to try to get that money—good, bad, or indifferent.
2: Yeah, well, exactly. I I have to tell you, these guys—they're like, you know, you know, they say like a shark could smell blood like t- ten miles away in the water. That's a- These guys are like that with money, you know, and and they're always trying to find some poor sap, you know, that's in the car business or some damn thing that's as far away from movies as they can get. And they just smell money and they go right for it like a shark and they start lying through their teeth about how they can double their money, triple their money. And and what's amazing is they know they're lying and they do it so effortlessly and with so much poetry, you have to admire it. It's, uh, there's a line in the movie that came literally from the mouth of one of these producers. When De Niro says at the beginning of the movie, he goes, he, when Morgan accuses him of lying. And he goes, I know I'm lying. He goes, I'm not lying. He goes, all right, maybe just a little bit. You know, I mean, that literally came from a guy that Bob and I both knew.
0: Well, it's, a direct quote. It sure is a. Even though it's a dirty mirror, it's a mirror on the movie making business. There's yeah. a lot of politics goes on with that, a lot of scheming and a lot of lying and a lot of empty promises. And the music business, well, it's like I asked Liberty. Do you know does the business ruin the talent? You know uh, the uh, the expectations of what we want from you. Does it ruin the talent that's there, uh, because it's like we're totally ignoring the talent, or it's an on demand talent kind of a thing, you know, uh, the tip jar there, so to speak.
2: Uh, yeah, me- I, I would, yeah, I think it does ultimately. You have to be very, very careful to. Uh, there's so many pitfalls along the way. I think you have to be very careful to keep your soul intact mm. because. Uh, You know, artists in many ways are like children, you know, in the best possible way and also the worst possible way. You know, when you've got your heart that far out in front of you, you know, the chances of getting hurt are high. And at the same time, like a lot of times, you know, people say, well, why do artists act so like like children? It's well, they are kids in a way. And we pay them to be these kids. You know, we we pay you know, we get paid to act out and have these fantasies and all of that stuff. And then they're like shocked when the child has a temper tantrum. It's like, well, yeah, that's part of being the kid. You know, it's like, (laughs) yeah, you're totally fucking unrealistic about everything you're doing, you know? And, uh, but over the years, I mean, I'm older now, I'm in my sixties. So, you know, I, am I, but the, the, I didn't mean to go off on a tangent, but the, yeah, the, the business side of it can destroy you. And I've seen a lot of people get, destroyed yeah. by it. You know, you've got to you have to have nerves of steel in some strange way, you know?
0: Well I have to tell you, and I'm a you know, I, I guess I got the luxury since it's my podcast to say at least, uh the fact that you will not find or I shouldn't I should word careful how I word this. I am probably one of the hugest General fans ever. Yeah. And you know that's not saying that every little film that he's ever done has been magic on film. I don't think that, but you know, I think that his good stuff just overshadows the other stuff. Yeah. Um, and I, I say this to George too, is the fact that um, uh, George, even if he wants to do both of you guys at the same time, I would love to do a podcast with him included in it and okay. talk to him. Uh, not not the bs kind of crap uh you know i saw his inside the actor's studio uh where the other people talk sometimes more than he does and sometimes you know he's like me is the fact that you know he, he's not a talking head kind of a person and i totally get that uh but i think that when he does have things to say he has things to say uh and i would love to try to work on uh doing a podcast with him and you guys, you guys would sound like you guys would be great. Just talking. Yeah. The well, we're you
2: know, I'll ask him, you know, it, it's, uh, yeah, you're, you're hundred percent right. He doesn't say many things that, uh, you know, like some people can babble and they go off on tangents. And I gotta tell you for a guy, he, he's such a sweet, dear guy, you know? And, and, uh, I, I find that, uh, like the really, really spectacular ones he obviously being at the top of that list sometimes they're not they they'll talk about a lot of stuff but they're not thrilled about talking about the process sometimes because you know i think they want to keep that a little private and personal it's very interesting like what you say some actors they can't stop talking about themselves he's He's not. not that guy you know he's almost embarrassed to talk about it it's like you know, yeah, he did it. He did the homework. He did the research. He did the work. He did the performance. And for him, it's behind him. So it's like when people want to talk about it, he's like, I don't even know what the fuck you're talking about. It's like I was there. I did it. I did my piece. I went home, you know. So I, I find that the most honest about him, you know. Like we're, we're, wow.
0: Well, you know, I, I love this. And a lot of people, And you're right. It's like a, a dog and pony show. Yeah. The fact that right. he refuses to do and I, I do not blame him are you talking to me I mean why would you want to regurgitate a line you said 20 25 years ago in a movie well it's yeah. so behind you you know why I think it's even stupid for people to even want to go there to even ask him to do that come on give me a break yeah
2: I you know do- like a lot of these things like you know like what it's very funny like it's uh the things that end up becoming iconic could have been throwaways So it's almost like it's very. And the other thing, too, is if you're not, you know, the the other thing about a lot of this stuff is you always try to. I find, you know, you try not to become too self-referential or too self-aware because the second you you get into that area, you start damaging what you're doing. You know, it's uh, although there are very successful filmmakers who are incredibly self-referential. I mean, they're they, they have bigger careers than I do you know, but, um, one of them lives up the hill. No, uh, (laughs) what ends up happening is they get so much, uh, you get so much critical acclaim and so much attention. And before you know it, you're bathing in that and you forgot why you wanted to make movies in the first place, because, you know, you, you get, it's something you start to marinate in a bit too much. And, and, uh, Mm. you know, I, I, uh, I look. I. It's very funny. I. I still, as odd as this may sound, and I really mean this, in all honesty. I still do this because I, I get. I'm blessed to still be doing it, but I do it because I get a real kick out of doing it. You know, it's. And I have to tell you something. Probably financiers don't want to hear this, but this is an interview. I'm supposed to be honest in the interview. The movie in a funny way, becomes the byproduct Mm. of you having a good time with a bunch of other artists. Because if you get too caught up in results, you're fucking dead. So if you have to somehow be in the moment of while you're making it and enjoying the moment while you're making it because all of those things are feeding off each other. If you start getting into this mindset of is this going to be any good or not, now you're looking at yourself too much. Now you're limiting yourself. You start to limit your choices. And before you know it, you're not doing anything anymore. You you kinda you box yourself into a you know a corner. Like it's I don't think you could create anything good that way. I mean look, when Monet said, Hey, I'm gonna put violet next to yellow and see if this vibrates, hmm. he he didn't think, hey, I'm gonna sell more paintings now. He was he, would, he didn't give a shit whether you got it or not. Neither did Van Gogh. They hoped you do. I hope people like my work. You know, I mean, I'm not doing it because I, I want empty theaters. But at the same time, if that's all you're doing it for, you start... I don't know, like you're singing for your supper and if everybody applauds 20 nights in a row and on the 21st night they hit you with a rotten tomato, then you think that you're questioning everything. You can't get into that mess. You
0: well, know? you know, it remind. that's why I felt that, and there were two very specific reasons why um, in the comeback trail, the drive-in scene to me was a bit of an epiphany moment because that moment... Got them off what they were actually talking about with the money that was being owed, and they were seeing what was captured and projected on that screen. That even though, by sure accident, many of the stuff that weren't even planned, it was brilliant and mm. the way it came out. And George is right. You know, you can't sometimes plan brilliancy, mm. brilliancy no. is born out of the moment. And if everybody happens to be on the on the same page in, in their own unique way in a contributing fashion, there's by you can't even compare it to anything else. It is what it is, and you were lucky you were able to capture it in a bottle at that mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was younger, my dad was in the military. So on weekends, my mom would make a big patch of popcorn and we would watch old movies all day long. And that was my greatest influence of film was when I was like 10 years old, watching movies all day long. And there was a period of my life where I thought I wanted to do that and I did uh, a handful of short films. Uh, and that was a whole learning curve, believe you me. Uh, and then when I got, when I arrived here in Reno, that's when I became interested in the film festival. And having the background background, of watching movies, having to try to shoot my own movies I wanted the opportunity to talk to people who were actually in the industry of making these movies good bad or indifferent and knock on wood <laughs> George is very good at it oh, and very uh, kind. I um, you know I he's a perfect I was thinking of Joe George Lucas the other day George Lucas' has how many films under his belt seriously right. But the only one he's known for is Star Wars. It's the thing that just threw him out of the planet. Did George plan on that? No, it just happened. Mm -hmm. You know, in
2: fact, yeah. In fact, I think he thought he had really shit the bed with that one because he said no one was coming to see this. I I, but I I didn't mean to cut you off. That's OK.
0: No, the point is you can make 30 movies and you're lucky if you get one that people like found an interest in, you know, and I, I was just thinking about the idea when he supposedly scissored up, tore up his, uh, his DGA card and I'm thinking the dude's still in the files. It's, it's more of a symbolic gesture he was making, but there was a whole lot of politics found in a movie that the studio said, wow, we can make some money off of this. And, you know, trying to take the movie away from him. I and mean, a whole lot of politics that he wasn't, Planning to encounter unfolded before him. Mm-hmm. You know his stake when that movie started blossoming was in the merchandising element, and that's where he made his money with mm. all that merchandising that came out of Star Wars.
2: No, like as a look as any kind of whether it's art, music, movies, whatever the hell it is, it's you're the you know the writer is the first audience of it. You know, and it's got to make you laugh or make you cry or whatever first. And I think if you come from a place of manipulation, it starts off wrong. It just starts. Can I ask you a question? I mean, sure. Do you have more questions to ask? Or, or I do. Uh, I have a few more. What? Look, you have something that I love. Okay, we're we're kindred spirits. Yes, okay. we and are. When <laughs> I hear when I hear you talk about movies, I hear that you love movies. Okay, and I. I find today that many film critics don't seem to love movies. They seem to actually dislike them the way I read them. When I read your reviews, I go, this guy gets it. He has a sense of film history that goes way back. You know, you really know what you're talking about. A lot of critics today, I don't want to get you in trouble. Oh, it's okay. But It's like, I, I don't think they like movies that much. I, I don't get it. It's like... Why is everyone so nasty all the time? You know, like I, there's some, there's, I don't want to mention there's a mini series I'm watching right now. I can't take my eyes off. And I started reading the reviews. They're going, they said it was bland. It was this, it was that. I'm like, bland? What the fuck are you watching? Do you know how good this is? It's, I don't get it. What is it? Do you have any idea? Are they, are they gunned? Are they, uh, uh like shell shot from watching too many films or what is it?
0: You know, part, I, one time, uh, we were doing a show. I I wasn't in the show, but I was in the production control and there was a guy, I I won't mention his name, um, but he was tearing up on a movie that I really liked. And I decided, and I at that moment decided one I wasn't there to defend the movie or have Mm -hmm. an argument about the movie, Mm -hmm. I felt that he was very, very entrenched in his thinking and there was really nothing I was going to be able to say that was going to change that way of thinking, and I'm thinking, you know, there's probably a lot of people like that. Yeah. You know, just can't they get, enjoy they, it for what it is. They get what they choose to get, yeah, out of it, uh, and they choose to bypass it. Uh, one is I'm an audience member all the time. That's my first. You know, well, that's
2: the smartest look. That's the smartest way to do anything. Look, whether you like Jackson Pollock or not, okay, he said something really brilliant in an interview, and he said. If you can only find a way to leave your predispositions and your personal garbage at the front door, when Mm. you walk in to experience something, it'll be a much richer, deeper experience, okay? Mm. Which makes sense. If you look at everything through the eyes of a child, you will like movies more, you will like music better, you will like life better, okay? But if you walk in with all these preconceived ideas and you walk in with your arms folded, Man, oh, man, you're never going to enjoy anything. That's not the way to approach it.
0: And, you know, to to tag along that thought is the fact that there are some movies I'll see the trailers for. And one just now, based on the trailer, it's not a movie for me to watch. Uh, There's nothing interesting to me, I can tell, that will appeal to me. Uh, And maybe the next day it will. Yeah. You know? Well, um, that's
2: interesting. I got to tell you, that's happened to me. You know, where I saw a movie and I walked out of there and I said, "Man, that thing fucking what the?" Fuck? I was, and then it would stay with me. I'm glad I didn't have to write a review about it. and Two weeks later, I'll revisit it and I'll go, "Man, I was wrong."
1: That and thing, I have been that way too. Me. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it pushed a button in me I didn't like.
1: Well, and you when know? you add the layer of, you know, some of these guys are are self-aggrandizing as well. Think about it this way. The same critic who might uh, give the poo-poo ratings to to something like this, would he give the same nasty rating if it wasn't De Niro and it wasn't these big names because he's going to be more forgiving? Is he is he being harder on him, or harsher or more critical because of that?
0: Well, I'm going to use an example of something here, and I was going to save it for another podcast to do all together. Mm. Um, but have you seen um, Hillbilly Elegy?
2: I, are you there? I'm here. I, it's very funny you said that. I, it it was on, look, and I know Ron Howard. It was on two nights ago and I watched half of it and I was really, really sleepy. I started watching it late at night and I had to shut it off because I was falling asleep and I don't like doing that to somebody's work. You know, I don't like, I respect it too much. Right. And there are people acting their ass off in that thing. I said, you know what? I'm going to stop it. I'm going to go back to the beginning and I'm going to watch it again all the way through. But I started it around 10 o'clock at night. I figured I'll make it till midnight, but I just didn't make it, you know, so, so, but I can't speak. I can't speak about it. So, okay.
0: Well, I don't want to brainwash you, but maybe I will put something to put, to think about at least they, I was sent a screener from the studio Mm. for the film and included a Q and a with Ron and the, Um, the two stars that are in it, Amy Adams and Glenn Close. And Ron said something on there that made me think about his movie a little bit. And he said, you know, um, that this is kind of a journey movie. Now, and I hate to sound uppity-up about it, but some people don't understand what a journey movie is. It's kind of a movie that just washes over you, okay? There's no definitive middle Beginning in and an end to it. It has to start somewhere. And it has to end somewhere. Okay. But it just washes over you. Now, as from a filmmaker's point of view, director's point of view, there are certain ways you can create those washing moments. For me, I compare it to, like, I don't know if you've seen the movie Roma.
2: Mm. Yes, I did.
0: Roma is, to me, for me personally, a fantastic movie. It's just, it's beautiful. It's harrowing. It's just, it's, it's. I loved it. I went to a screening in New York for it. Netflix flew us all out for it. It was, it was kind of a great opportunity to see it. The director came in and talked about it for about 10 minutes, but a lot of that movie is not broken up with a bunch of cuts. There are a lot of long shots. There are a lot of long takes which you could talk to a lot of filmmakers and you don't see very much of that anymore, mm-hmm. but it serves a purpose. There's a point to why it's done that way. Yeah. It wasn't done because I couldn't afford it for most part. Right. <laughs> for his part, he did it for a reason. And when you're watching a film kind of almost like you're watching it from across the street, a situation happens. It plays in your head very differently Then going from a long shot to a medium shot to a close up shot to a reaction shot, it just it plays differently. If you were to watch, and I'll use an example, a couple fighting. It's very different if you're like in the car next door watching it fight. Yeah. It almost feels like I'm watching this when I shouldn't really be watching this. It's none of my business. The kid that gets clobbered in the supermarket, you know, it's none of my business. I shouldn't be sitting here, but you're captivated by it. You know, what, how far is this going to go? That's kind of sometimes the feeling of what you're going through. Um, there's a scene. Well, I,
2: I got to tell you, it's very interesting what you're saying because long shots also, long shots in some ways can be anxiety producing too because you're looking at something for, like you say, for a very, very long time and you can't really look away except to look away from the screen. So, It could be very hypnotic in a way. And at the same time, it it could also produce a great deal of anxiety because a lot of times when you're using lots of cuts, which obviously, you know, is 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 part of the dialogue of making movies and the choices you make as to why you're going to use cuts versus long takes. If you're using long takes and you're you're watching something, let's say, done in, in, in one long master and you're forced to watch it it can be also very uncomfortable to watch yes because the cuts almost remind you that you're in a movie yes but watching it and just watching it like a casual observer like you're saying can create a lot of anxiety Mm. and you know part of i think being a smart audience member is recognizing your own personal anxiety that is being produced by watching something versus Like, the filmmaker wants to make you uncomfortable here, obviously. And if they're making you uncomfortable, they're doing the job properly. But then if you react against it, then now we're talking about you and your reaction against something that was done very specifically. Uh, That's really funny. I I did a movie uh, called Middlemen years ago. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw it. Wow, I did. Yeah, and there was a critic in the San Francisco paper who said, I really disliked this movie because it produced so much anxiety and not in a positive way. And I'm like, that was the whole fucking point. I, I I did my job. It was about a bunch of cocaine addicts in in, in the porn business and they were heading towards a cliff the entire movie. They're heading towards a cliff and the movie was making it very clear that these people were never going to end well, you know? And he, and I said, that's exactly what I intended to do. So 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 he reacted negatively to it that I can't stop, you know, but to 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 attack the movie for its for its very virtue made no sense to me, you know.
1: Well, I'm really looking forward to the comeback trail, because to be honest, this movie is going to be uncomfortable for me, because even though it's lighthearted and there's levity and that's what it's about, it's going to be a pretty harsh reflection. I mean, you mentioned uh, talking about De Niro's character, those types of people they do shatter their souls. I shattered my soul at some point in my life and I've spent all about right. a decade putting it back together. And, yeah, and I'm going to yeah. watch this movie where it's like, we are totally making fun of dumb fucks just like you. And yeah, it's kind of, yeah. it's, it's profoundly interesting for me. I can't wait to watch it.
2: It is. Yeah, always, I, I hope you enjoy it. I hope I'm going to love it. it. I look, love the, the trailer. Is, yeah. The movie is, is, is a lot of fun. You know, we kept, look, it's crazy. It all is. I mean, there's like a, you know there's some almost like three stooges kind of bits in it there's a horse that when it hears a certain words it starts kicking i mean there's some crazy shit in it. but we also wanted to make the movie seem semi-believable guys i gotta tell you my low battery thing is going off and Uh-oh. i don't want to i don't want to suddenly be gone
1: <laughs> that's okay i mean you know what do you think scott do you want to try to get get a couple rapid-fire questions and let them just talk to us go until ahead. you're done? Go ahead.
2: Fire away. Fire away. And if I disappear, then I apologize. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I charged the thing just before they started. I don't understand, but go ahead. Well,
1: before then, I'm just going to say it was a real pleasure, sir, and, and an honor, and, and thank you for letting me be a part of this.
2: Are
0: you kidding? And if we have to do a part two later, we we will, George.
2: Let's do a part two. Let Amen. me uh,
0: – I want because because I do want to get into some stuff where I know that George can get – more expanding on filmmaking, uh, getting into the business. If you're in college, what to do? And I don't want to suck it up, and all of a sudden he goes dead. no. no so I let's can, do I a part can, two can, to this, if you don't mind.
2: Absolutely. Uh, I could put I can put all your listeners to sleep. Okay.
0: <laughs> George, no, I do want to wrap it up by saying by ending my comments about uh, about uh, uh, the OJ movie in Roma. There's a scene um, where these kids are going to the beach with their nanny and they get into the water, and they realize they're in an overwhelming situation. And you'll watch the movie, and there's not a single cut in this shot. There, It's shot uh, sideways, which is interesting too, because, you, and it's, let me pause for a second. If you think of that screen, and what you capture in and out of that screen, you see these kids go into the water, and then go off the screen. Mm. So you can't really tell how deep they're going, what their reaction is, but then the next thing, you the sound that you can tell that they're having some issues out there. Mm. So they call for the nanny, and then you can see from the right side of the screen, the nanny going into the water fully clothed and going into the kids. And again, the camera doesn't move. Mm. So again, you're seeing the serene water there's two things it captures here. One is the beauty of where they're at. Mm. So the camera doesn't shift and say, what's happening? No, 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 no. Mm. You stay on the serenity of the visual, but you hear the audio of the panic and what's going on. Mm. And then you hear the nanny dragging these kids across the screen back to safety. Mm -hmm. It's such an interesting, beautiful way of shooting a very dire situation. Yeah. And I was just so compelled by that moment in the film. So when Ron Howard was using the word washing over, I was thinking, at least if I had been directing some of those scenes, I wouldn't, there's some scenes in the car where they're going back and forth, and it would have been nice to show those more in some just a long shot and let it play out. I thought the acting is great. The directing is great. It was just some of those scenes I had some personal questions about. Somebody had posted on Facebook how they felt it was a masterpiece. And I'm thinking, it's a good movie. I'm not sure I would shove it so quickly into that category just yet. Mm -hmm. But anyway.
2: You know, I don't think with masterpieces, it's very funny. I think think masterpieces are for history to tell. Thank you you.
0: Thank you. George, you know. we were split at birth, man. You were my older brother, I swear.
2: <laughs> oh, thanks,
0: man. <laughs> I Great. want to, uh, I, I know your battery's probably going to drop dead, uh, and I know you and I will to be talking more. Put a bug in Bob's ear. This guy's a I good guy. Will. Uh, he's worth I talking will. to. <laughs> I certainly will. And uh, maybe... Uh, uh, that we'll be able to do this soon. Uh, I know you're you're still filming on another movie right now. No, um, I'm,
2: I'm actually in post, and and to be honest with you, I'm just doing some writing, so I'm free. If, oh, really? You talk to do it, I'll talk about movies, art, anything you want to talk about. Wow, what a, what a guy. My man,
0: George, I love hey, you. <laughs> I love you, George. Well, I'm going to let I you go. I love you, too. So your battery doesn't go off. I do want to visit you on set. When I get down Please. to L.A., we're going to do lunch and talk. Uh, please
2: come uh, to the set I, uh, experience true experience true boredom <laughs>
0: <laughs> i always told my my brother We always wanted to get into editing i said dude it's either going to be the most exciting thing you see or the most boring thing you're ever going to see it's one of two camps i mean you can't have it all uh yeah it's not the fastest thing in the world to do uh, it, it's a
2: lot of fun you know it, look when, when it's working it's great you right know, um but, you know, it's a lot of hurry up and wait. I mean, come back, Trev. we had weather issues. Like, you know, we were shooting in the middle of uh, they didn't put this in the brochure. You know, when we went to Albuquerque, <laughs> that like a monsoon comes through town from one o'clock to four o'clock. And it's like hurricane force winds and unbelievable rain and shit flies away. and The lights come. Cr- I mean, we lost we lost more, we lost stuff. You know, yeah, like we had tents set up for the actors. They they must have been half a mile down the road, you know? Wow. And uh, so that wasn't in the brochure. But that, look, I guess if if you're looking for exciting, yeah, that was very exciting. Watch us chase paper and tents and stuff. Uh, (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, you know, until we talk again, because we will, George. We haven't wrapped okay. this up yet. I hope so. We've put a pause for now. Uh, all right. So your battery can you can go to a room and recharge it. it. Plug it in. And uh, we will talk. Uh, I want to say thank you. We have a special song that we have for all of our guests now. You do? Yes. It's from the Slim Kings. Uh,
2: I don't have to sing along or anything. You like do that.
0: not. <laughs> Just know that this song is for you. Uh, oh, we you. played it for Liberty, and he loved it. I listened to the song, and it's a fun song. Uh, and uh, so I want to end by saying thank you, George. And thank you, by, Scott. Uh, thank you,
2: Brandon. S- thank you, Mr. Gallo. Schedule
1: You're a charming man and a, a very wise person, and it was a pleasure to listen to you speak.
0: So, George, thank you. Let's end this four-year review uh, with writer, producer, director extraordinaire, Mr. George Gallo. For your review would like to thank you
1: Thank you